Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Um, what I was going to do is address myself to two basic myths. One, the myth that we have a free and independent press and media. And two, the myth that it's a liberal press. Um, and then I'll also say something about entertainment media because it's part of the, it's an extension of it. After I wrote Inventing Reality, I realized there's a, when you look at television, there's the other 85% of television which has nothing to do with the, the press or the, or the news media, and that's the entertainment field. So I wrote another book called Make Believe Media about the entertainment media, and I'll say something about that also. First, I'd like to point out that uh, our free, quote, free and independent press is neither all that free nor is it all that independent. For one thing, if you work in the news corps, you find that there's a lot of government censorship. Uh, an enormous amount of government documents of information is classified, you can't get to it. So that means that in our democracy there are people that are doing all sorts of things that one can't really find out and hold, uh, for which they can't hold them accountable. There's an innate dependence on government sources when you're in the media. Um, the press corps, the Washington press corps, it depends. The, the, the government official them, uh, controls literally the lifeblood of that media, which is information. And they can let it flow or they can withhold it. And uncooperative reporters often get punished. They don't get, they get the false information, no story breaks, or they're frozen out of travel pools or things like that. Cooperative reporters are rewarded. They get insiders, scoops, special appointments. They often get government appointments uh, also. In fact, what you find, rather than an adversarial thing of a free and independent press challenging the government, questioning government, what you find is a remarkable collusion between government and media. So what's what uh, we've called the revolving door between government and media. You have people like Leslie Gelb, Ben Bradley, uh, most of the top management leadership of the Copley uh, uh, newspaper chain, all having worked for the FBI, uh, 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 for the CIA. FBI also has their pet journalists and columnists. J. Edgar used to feed stories to favorite journalists, to plant stories and, and whatever else. Um, but they worked for the CIA for a long time. The church committee discovered that over 500 journalists were also in the pay of the CIA. In some cases, they were reporters who were recruited by the CIA. In other cases, they were CIA people who posed as journalists in, in various operations and things. Um, <clears throat> Diane Sawyer. Diane Sawyer is a very good case. She worked in the, in the Nixon administration. When Nixon got kicked out of office in disgrace, resigned, she went off with him to San Clemente and, and, and stayed there for two years with, with Pat and Dick to help him write his uh, autobiography. And then she came back uh, out of government and then is in the media now and works for ABC and is a big, uh, what do you call it, anchor woman, whatever you want to call it, a host of a show. Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan has been, his entire work life has been either working in the Nixon administration, Reagan administration, either working in government or working in news media uh, as a journalist and columnist, government media, journalist and columnist. In other words, in his whole life he hasn't had an honest job. I mean, that's really <laughs> terrible, you know. So, the latest example is Pete Williams. I don't know if any of you saw Panama Deception, the uh, 
documentary film that won the Academy Award, um, which, you know, I signed a petition because the film was suppressed in Panama. They wouldn't show it. But we shouldn't overlook the fact that the film has been suppressed in the United States. It wasn't exactly government that suppressed it, but you can't get it on the networks. It's shown in one or two PBS, local PBS stations. Um, I have a vested interest because I'm in the film. For, and who knew I was going to be in an Academy Award film? So you're looking at a star here. Um, <clears throat> also in the film is one Pete Williams who was the Pentagon spokesperson. And we'd come on, we'd have cuts of him, he'd come on and he'd say, I have heard of no such thing of Panamanian civilians getting killed like that. And then we cut to a shot of all these bodies lying there and the things blowing up and this and that. And, you, and, you, I, and back to Pete Williams, I have heard, no, that has hasn't happened all that. So here was this Pentagon flack, you know, worked for the government, and now he is NBC national reporter. So how free and independent, these guys with this revolving door. And then sometimes, in the case of Leslie Gelby, went from the government to the Washington, no, New York Times, back into the government, and back to the Times. I mean, uh, <clears throat> now if this happens in a totalitarian country, you say, look at that. If you say, if you said, you know, in Soviet Russia, you had people in working for Pravda who then were in the KGB and then worked for Pravda again or then went in, into some other ministry. You say, wow, you can say, see, they don't have a free and independent press. They, they're all just kind of in bed together there. Well, we got the same kind of thing here, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say. <clears throat> but most of the censorship isn't even government censorship. Most of the censorship that goes on in the media is actually done by the media themselves, by the publishers, the editors, uh, and the like. <clears throat> That's another control. <clears throat> in fact, the media often is quite happy and accepts government censorship. During the Gulf War, when the army and when the uh, U.S. military put that put the clamps down on all press, nobody go out and look for themselves and whatever else. Uh, Tom Brokaw said, well, they were burned, the military was burned in Vietnam and now they're being cautious and you can't blame them. I thought that was kind of a remarkable statement to make for a pressman to say, I don't mind the government censorship. I'll take whatever handouts they give me, whatever they say about the war and how it's going, what it's about and all that, that's what I will simply write. And so you have what some people have called the stenographers of, for power that the media becomes the guys who write whatever the State Department says ABC, it's ABC. The next day the line changes to uh, uh, XYZ, then it's XYZ. <clears throat> the, the, what I'm saying then is that the major form of news control can be found in the structure of the news organizations themselves. The major media, and by the major media I mean the New York Times, the Washington Post, and by the way, they have national syndicates. When you, when you, I did an op editorial for the New York Times once, and a friend in Denver, Colorado, uh, two, I've had two op, op, edit, two op editorials in the New York Times. The first one I had a fight for about a month against, uh, against uh, the superior editor who tried to censor the, the other editor to finally get the thing in. I had to rewrite it three times and it finally came out on a Saturday paper. But then a friend of mine in Denver, Colorado said, uh, hey, I saw your op editorial in Denver Post, and you realize that the New York Times has a whole syndicated, and you don't get, by the way, you don't get any reprint 
permission uh, fees for it, your writers, that you have to sign away that. LA Times, the same thing, you sign it away. So they can use it and reprint it all sorts of places and resell it dozens of times and the writer doesn't get a penny for it. Um, so the LA, Time, the LA Times, Washington Post has a national syndicate. The New York Times has a national syndicate. Uh, by the major media, that's what I mean. Those two papers and the Wall Street Journal and NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN. That pretty much is what we're talking about when we're talking about the major news media. And most of the other newspapers are spin-offs. I mean, they use or feed in to those lines. And the major news services, Associated Press, UPI, and Reuters. Now, those major media are not close to corporate America. They're not friendly to corporate America. They are corporate America. I mean, they are integral components of corporate America. NBC is owned by General Electric. Now, how many great fighting exposés are you going to see on defense contracts and NBC? Uh, documentaries and all, and NBC TV when it's owned by General Electric. Um, all these media are owned by multi-billionaires. Uh, the Grams, the Hearst family, Newhouser, Knight Ritter, Gannett, uh, in the newspaper business, you have newspapers and not only the big chains are not only buying up small independents, they're buying up other chains. And so the, le the degree and level of concentration is getting greater and greater. Uh, 90, something like 95, it changes every year. It was 91, 94, it's 95, it's probably 97 by now. Of all <clears throat> cities don't have competing newspapers. So you get one one information. When you do have more than one newspaper, they almost all run from mildly centrist to, uh, to mildly conservative or maybe outright right-winger. And those owners do not hesitate. The, the major media and the major networks are run by boards of trustees. The boards, uh, boards of directors, they're called. Boards of trustees are, are university. Same guys. They literally are often the same guys. They are, ha they are manned by the people who inhabit these boards of directors are overwhelmingly drawn from the major corporations and banks in America. If you look at CBS's board of directors, you have representatives from Ford Motor Company, from Chase Manhattan Bank, from ITT and, 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 and various other. So the influence of these major corporations in the economy, the multi-billion dollar businesses, extends also to the influence they exercise directly in the media. DuPont owns the chains of newspapers. Copley, Salzburger, Punch Salzburger of the New York Times. Old man Salzburger has a computer. He's retired now. His son is even more conservative than he is. Has a computer on his desk and would call up every day the editorials that are going in the next day. This idea that these, you talk to editors, they don't, they, they won't give you a Are you telling me, I have you know that I'm completely independent? Well, you work for Salzburg, you'll find out something different. He can call up the editorials every morning, uh, every afternoon for the next morning, and he will change. If anything he doesn't like, boom, he beeps in, and, and he'll even look at the front page. And if he doesn't like a story, he'll say, kill it, or put it back, cut it, this, that, the other thing, spike it. Um, and that goes on all the time. Top-down control of information and news. Now reporters, Reuben Murdoch, by the way, was interviewed. I saw an interview of him in Vanity Fair. It was very interesting because they said to him, 
you know, he's buying up news media, TV stations, radio stations, and they say to him, well, do you, you're known as a, <clears throat> a right-wing conservative. Are you, a, do you, do you have your opinions, do they, uh, do you allow your opinions then to, uh, to, do you exercise an opinion influence over your publications? And I thought the guy was going to say, no, I respect the autonomy and professionalism of my editors and journalists and all that. He said, of course I do. He, says, he said, I'm not a right-wing conservative, I'm a radical conservative, which means even more conservative than, than that. He said, and you bet. He says, the buck stops with me, yes. <clears throat> do, you, do, you, do, you, uh, do you leave your conservative influence on your publications? And he says, yes, indeed. Reporters and editors who don't comply with that eventually run into problems. Reporters worry about getting their copy cut. They get passed over for promotion. They get reassigned to, uh, you know, some Siberia desk or something. Uh, and, and they get off the, the juicy stories or they don't get them, whatever else. And they have these problems. Oddly enough, if you talk to most reporters, most of the reporters I know who have given me stories about censorship, about top-down control and all, are ex reporters. They're often people, I began noticing, well, I used to work for Associated Press, or well, I used to work for CBS, well, I used to. The ones who are still in there absolutely vehemently deny that there's any such thing like this. They get very indignant. They say, are you telling me that I'm not my own man? I'll have you know that in 17 years with this paper, I always say what I like. And I say to them, you say what you like because they like what you say. And you know, the minute you move too far and you have no sensation of a restraint on your freedom. I mean, you don't know you're wearing a leash if you sit by the peg all day. It's only if you then begin to wander to a prohibited parameter that you feel the tug, you see. So you're free because your, <clears throat> your ideological perspective is coterminous with, uh, congruent with that of your boss. So you have no sensation of, of being at odds with your boss. You see. Others will tell you though, yeah, you can be censored. Others will say you have to have very finely attuned antenna to just how far you can go or not go, and you otherwise you'll run into trouble. And we're talking here, you know, of um, really very subtle process of socialization. The boss doesn't necessarily come down and say, you write what I like, and if you don't do that, although I have I have examples in inventing reality, second edition, of a few choice cases like that where the owner says, you will not say anything ne negative about any Republican candidate that will not be allowed in the press during the entire campaign, that you will not say anything positive um, about any Democratic candidate. I mean, sometimes you get that, but generally that isn't the way it works. What'll happen is somebody will mosey over to you at the water cooler and say, you know, don't get over involved in your story here, or you don't get run off becoming a cause person, or you gotta be objective. And objective means, objectivity means taking the world as officialdom says it is. Objectivity means not bringing up troublesome uh, information that might cause discomfort to people of power and position, especially economic power, especially big corporate advertisers who pay our bills and the like. Nicholas Johnson, former uh, uh, commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission said there are four stages that journalists go through. In the early stage, you're a young crusader and you write a uh, expose story about the powers they be and you bring it to your editor and the editor says, no, kill it, we can't touch that. Too hot. 
Stage two, you get an idea for the story, but you don't write it, and you check with the editor first, and he says, no, it won't fly. No, I don't think the old man won't like it. Uh, don't do that. He has a lot of friends in there, and, and that would get, might get messy. Stage three, you get the idea for the story, and you yourself dismiss it as silly. Stage four, you no longer get the idea for that kind of an expose story. And I would add, at stage five, you then appear on panels with media critics like me and you get very angry and indignant when we say that there are biases in the media and you're not as free and independent as you think. And those biases, as I'm saying, are not liberal biases. They actually move in a conservative direction. Another control besides these rich conservative owners, all overwhelmingly all of whom are conservative Republicans, is the advertisers. Advertising, uh, I mean, you know, uh, they say journalists are people who write on the back of advertisements. And uh, look at you, if you think that's such a joke, look at your newspaper next time and, and just do a rough content analysis you're turning the pages. How much of it is actual copy and how much of it is advertising? How much of it is news copy? How much of it is advertising copy? Um, <clears throat> Salzberger, Norman, Norman Bauman uh, did a study and he quoted Salzberger as saying, for years the New York Times could not write a story that was critical of the automotive industry, that it was unsafe and this and that. A young lawyer about, uh, about almost 30 years ago now, a young lawyer in Washington did, a, did an expose, an investigation of automobiles, he, and he wrote up a whole expose about how unsafe they were, how dangerous they were, da everything from dashboards to visibility. He couldn't get that story published in a single major media. His name was Ralph Nader. Nobody had ever heard of him, but the story was interesting. He had it published in a little obscure magazine called Fact Magazine. Then it got picked up here, got picked up. He finally wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, which became a bestseller. So then Congress couldn't annoy, uh, uh, ignore it, and they had hearings and all this sort of thing. But he couldn't get it in. And one of the people, Salzberger was a typical example. He had a rule, nothing in the New York Times that's critical of the automotive industry ever. Why? He was very clear. They are our biggest account. Ford, GM, and Chrysler were our biggest account in those days. This was before Toyota and Japanese took over much of it. Todd Gitlin interviewed uh, network bosses, NBC, CBS, and he talks to one. He records an interview he has in one of his books, and he asked the guy, uh, do advertisers influence the content of your TV shows, programs? You know, and again, I thought the guy was going to give the usual blather well, it's a, it's a pressure we could feel now and then, but we have our professional standards and we have keep our autonomy and all that. I thought that that's what he was going to say. He said, you betcha, absolutely. Hey, yes, all the time. Are you kidding? Of course, they pay the bills. Yes, sir, we always check with them on things. And I'll give you some examples later on when I talk about the entertainment industry. Um, so when people talk about a free market of ideas in our democracy, Please remember that it's not afraid, that conjures up an image of a lot of little bizarre, uh, little uh, stalls at a bazaar, you know, when you walk along and you can choose something from this one, choose from that, or choose from the other. Um, it's more like the free market of commodities in America, which is a market that's highly controlled by a small number of giant producers uh, with, with uh, other things left really at the margin, and that's pretty much it. If you've got the billions of bucks, you can break major uh, uh, audiences. If you don't have it, you can't. You will find, if you do anything, whether you write something or you 
put a film together or whatever else. In, in a capitalist system, they'll sell you the typewriter, they'll sell you the computer, they'll sell you the video camera, they do all that, and you can make whatever you want. The trick then is getting distribution, and that becomes the hard thing, and you'll find that the channels of distribution are controlled by very big people, and they will decide. The trick also sometimes is in, is in doing the story, raising the funds to be able to make whatever the documentary or the movie you might want to do. Um, but in that sense, it's not a free market. Those who expend vast amounts of capital will be able to reach mass audiences. Those who have access to vast amounts of capital. And that becomes a form of censorship, market control. <clears throat> in addition, I would say the political culture itself, the dominant political culture is not a, a neutral entity. It is something that is developed uh, by schools, by universities, by government, by social sciences, and, and by the media. And the media finds confirmation for the images it propagates and the images that it's already propagated. And so what you've got really is this background, um, this accumulated reservoir of images, which by the way, I think much of what we call culture is that, the impacted accumulated reservoir of images that are produced not by neutral institutions, but by very powerful and interested institutions. It's what Alvin Guldner called the background assumptions, or Carl Becker called it, and Carl Becker, Alvin Guldner, Becker called it the, the climate of opinion back in the 30s. That's become an ordinary term now, but it was his original concept, I think. And then the argument was that anything you see, any bit of information you see, the persuasiveness, your readiness to accept it, depends less on the data and the argument that's made then, then on whether or not it is congruent with, with the background assumptions that you already have about what is, um, what is okay and what isn't okay. In other words, what I'm saying is that supply creates demand. That it's not just, we always think of demand creating supply, it often works the other way around. Something you might think about. Uh, I, I was w being interviewed in Seattle, Washington, uh, and a radio journalist says, well, uh, if, there were, if there were progressive, iconoclastic, more critical viewpoints, and if the people were interested in see hearing them, they would hear them, and then these other publications would, uh, would sell more. Why doesn't, say, the nation sell more? It's because people aren't interested in reading it. And if you had a winning formula, you'd be okay. I said, well, you know, back during the turn of the century, there was McClure's, there was a number of uh, muckraking magazines that these fighting journalists had published, and they were getting tremendous circulation. And the guy who was also there, some, some mainstream academic communications guy said, well, heck, if those things were there and they knew they could make a buck on it, they would, they would go out there and, um, they would go out there and uh, produce those magazines and sell them. I said, no, they would not if those magazines were writing things that were embarrassing to their interests. Those muckraking magazines, in fact, were embarrassing to the interests of the powers that be. And Morgan, J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller came along and Mellon came along and they bought them all up and said the people are tired of muckraking and exposés about the rich and powerful. Bought the magazines all up and totally changed them or closed them down. Fired all the editors and the staff and revamped them. And that's what happened. And the Nation magazine, as I explained to that journalist, I said, the reason why USA Today can, in two years, become the third biggest selling national newspaper in the country is um, that Gannett was behind it. And Gannett 
put in hundreds of millions of dollars every year. So that suddenly, in, 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 in a few months, you had on every corner a, 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 little, a little magazine distributor rack there when you get USA Today. Most Americans have never even heard of the nation. I will wager, I won't ask for a show of hands, I will wager there are even some people in this highly informed audience who have never heard of the nation. And the nation has been around for over a hundred years. But the difference is that the nation doesn't have hundreds of millions of dollars to make mass market outreaches and, and, uh, and do that sort of thing. So that supply is one of the things that helps create demand. The first condition of all consumption is the accessibility of the commodity. You could ask any business person or any marketing person, if you think you're gonna just produce something and just sit there and wait for the public to beat a door, uh, to beat a path to your door and, and buy the thing, you're wrong. You then have to go out and give it visibility and make it accessible. I remember the soft drink industry. When I was a kid, soft drinks were, well, soft drinks, they were called soda pop in those days. Soda pop was considered something not very healthy for you. It was something you drank maybe at picnics or ball games or something, or birthday party, you'd have some. And with the advent of television in the early 1950s, the soda pop companies started calling themselves soft drinks and they started advertising on TV and they started showing family-sized bottles and getting them into the um, supermarkets. And suddenly there were dispenser machines that you could find in the lobby of any bank, any school, any place in the world. They're everywhere, right? And the sales of Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola and, and all those drinks went skyrocketing up. There'd be shots of ads and, and TV. You'd see families sitting together with these big Pepsi-Cola bottles, drinking it with their food. I mean, I don't know, I'll bet, again, no show of hands, but I'll bet some of you are guilty of that. Drinking that rot gut soft drink the stuff that, that uh, rots your guts and your teeth, drinking it, it's now be, it's gone from a novelty drink to a staple. I mean, it's become a, a national drink, sort the soft drinks are. That, my friends, was done by, not because people, some, something happened to, there was a funny generation that came along in 1950, just got a craze for soft drinks. So, oh, I'm gonna have more of it. That was done by deliberately changing the tastes of the American public and changing the taste by exposing them to a whole set of images and accessibility of making the supply create the demand by making that supply so imminent and so uh, right there up front in front of people until they get hooked on the sugar in it and they drink it like maniacs, you know. All right. I disapprove of soft drinks, I just want you to know. It's often nice to make that point. If you're talking in a class, it's often nice to make that point because invariably, or if it's a lecture hall where you have those, you know, those armrest seats where you take notes, invariably there'll be one or two cans and I, I could point them out and, and you see the person starts to squirm and giggle and all that sort of thing. But nobody brought a soft drink in, huh? So we won't, they're probably under the seats there somewhere. There also, I would say, is very little ideological diversity in the media, despite the fact that you have a great variety of outlets. Uh, you have a lot of newspapers. You go across the country, you find the same columnists in all these newspapers and the same commentators, and they are overwhelmingly conservative. They're the same thing on TV. John McLaughlin, a right-wing commentator, has three TV shows. 
one in the networks and one in PBS, or two in the networks, one in PBS, William Buckley, Pat Buchanan, George Will, Evans and Novak, uh, with a sprinkling on the left, the left being people like Michael Kinsley, that's about as far left as you go. Kinsley once turned to Buchanan and said, a, a moment of great truth, I thought, he said, I'm not as far left as you are far right. And I said, yay, yay, that's for sure. But there's the polit political spectrum is, is pretty much amputated, amputated at around center. It's really center versus right. And witness the fact, for instance, that almost all the debate on major policies are debates of the center versus the right. The health plan today, the whole health plan de debate is between those who want Clinton's managed competition and those who don't want anything very much at all, the Republican right. And, and the single payer stuff has just been ruled out. It was declared at the beginning, it won't have a chance. It's just defined, even though polls showed that overwhelming majorities of Americans would go for a single payer Canadian type plan once they know what it's about. Um, And often there is an appearance of diversity. You may get two people debating a subject, McNeil Lair, they'll say, here we have two, you know, Elliot Abrams versus Sam Nunn on defense. Sam Nunn who says we've got to keep a strong military and keep the spending at this level. Elliot Abrams who says we've got to spend yet even more. And some of us sit there and say, what about the guy who says we should have drastic cuts with major conversion plans to, to, to convert this to civilian economy where so many things need to be done, where so many things need to be built, a rational mass transit system and this and that, you know, reallocation of, of, of tens of billions of dollars. You don't hear that. That guy is, is, cut, is cut off. Um, Nightline once had Richard Burke and Richard Pearl on, one of them supporting the Reagan hardline anti-communist policy, another one saying it wasn't hardline enough and was getting soft toward the, toward the Russians. McNeil Laird now does have one, quote, progressive commentator on, Erwin Knoll, after much agitation and pressure, but whenever he's on, he's on with five other people and he only gets about a half a minute and he's not very good anyway. Um, <clears throat> I know from my own experiences, I've been on C CNBC, cable NBC, I've been on Crossfire twice. It's horrible, horrible. You sit there and you got one, one right winger here, it was, it was Robert Novak and, and, uh, and uh, Reed Irvine of AIM here, and they're screaming at you, both of them shouting, and you can't finish a sentence. I remember turning to Novak, I said, is this a screaming match or are you gonna let me finish a sentence? He said, we'll let you finish a sentence, but first we have to break for a commercial. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and that's the way it is. When I wrote Inventing Reality, the National Enquirer, my one moment of my Andy Warhol, one moment of total national media glory, the National Enquirer, you know the rag that you see the supermarkets? <laughs> it calls me up and, said, and the guy says, Mr. Parenti, we want to do a story on you and your book, The National, uh, the Inventing Reality. I said, in the National Enquirer, I say, hello? And my, he says, yes, could you tell us this? And the kind of questions he's asking, it's very interesting, you know, you're sort of caught, you have to give the interview. He said, he said I said, you know, I don't want to talk to you. I know what you're going to come up with. He says, well, if you talk to me or don't talk to me, we're going to come up with it anyway. <laughs> and he says, and so you might as well be able to try to get your two cents in, you know? So, you know, they got you hooked. So you say, no, 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 I'm no, that's not what happened. That isn't what I said. This is what I said. No. Well, it finally came out in the National Enquirer and it was a whole half a page. The bottom half was ads and here was this whole half a page. 
and it said, professors teach hatred of America. And I, my jaw dropped. And there were two pictures there, a picture of me and a picture of Karl Marx, both of us next to us. <laughs> and then there was a graphic on the other side of the, of the picture. The graphic consisted of an outline map, an outline map of the United States, just an outline. And across the middle of it was a sickle cutting through with drops of blood dripping like that. Subtle, subtle. Um, so, so sometimes people, of my opinion, do get exposure in the media. I don't want to overstate it. The outcome is that you have a media that has a very pro-business bias. What's good for business is generally thought of as good for America. Alternative policies and approaches are seldom discussed and debated. There are all sorts of feelings, uh, you know, in a democracy where, where the average citizen does not own a radio station or a TV station, uh, mass demonstrations, uh, feelings, sentiments of these sorts become the, the creative impetus for democracy. There are a feedback, there are a way that citizens can feedback and tell their government that enough is enough here or we want more of that and the other thing. Many of those kinds of protests are blacked out of the media. They're simply not allowed in. Uh, the media are generally anti-labor, non-existent. Labor is almost non-existent. U.S. interventionism abroad, uh, always, almost always supported, unless opinion turns sharply, um, unless American lives are being lost and the objective isn't being quickly uh, done. We see that kind of, we see that kind of racism, ethnocentrism right now in the national discussion on Somalia. 18 U.S. Rangers were killed, 78 wounded in one fight, and suddenly 18 American lives become the most important thing that exists. No word, no debate ever about the over 1,000 Somalians who've been killed. The official figure is like 300 and something. We now know that the Belgian paratroopers massacred 200 Somalians just just uh, a few weeks ago and it was all covered up. Um, there have been many of them killed. Uh, UN head David, uh, head of the military mission David Stockwell is saying things like, uh, oh, we don't count, or uh, in that one demonstration he said, the women and children were endangering the lives of the UN troops, so they had to be, that's why we shot at them. They were, they were committing acts of violence or shooting at the UN troops. It's kind of disgusting and um, <clears throat> What's often, what's often left, uh, even when there is debate about interventionist policy, what's left unexamined is whether or not that policy really is coming from good intentions. Uh, the, the regular demonizing of foreign leaders. I mean, in Vietnam, you know, the debate finally came as we should get, the debate was between those who said we can win in Vietnam and those who said we can't win. So let's get out. There was no debate about all the other people, the millions of us who were marching and saying, we shouldn't win, we shouldn't even be fighting. We should allow that country to develop in its own ways, make its own mistakes, and there's nothing you have that's so precious and so great that justifies your going in there and saturation bombing with B-52s and burning villages and killing men, men, women, and children at the rate that you're doing and, and spraying that country with dioxide and Agent Orange and, 
and destroying its ecology and, 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 wreck, and wreaking that kind of havoc and murder and slaughter. There's nothing you have, no refrigerators, no general motor cars, no great free enterprise system that you have that's so magnificent that justifies your doing that to those people. And um, that, that opinion never got on the air. That opinion that we shouldn't be in the war because it was a wrong war and an immoral war was never debated. The debate was always over tactical things. We're losing too many American lives. It's too costly. It was well-intentioned, but it went awry. Good intentions gone awry. Uh, we want to bring those poor little brown and, and yellow and colored folk. We want to bring them the blessings of democracy, but they just aren't ready for it and they don't, didn't know how to do it. So our efforts are being wasted. I mean, it's an amazing ethnocentrism there. And an amazing amount of unexamined assumptions. And often when you watch something on the media, it's not the particular things they're saying, it's the things, the immense things they're assuming and leaving unsaid that can become rather bothersome in that way. <clears throat> you, see that, you see that same kind of thing happening today with, um, in, in Russia. where the Democrats in the parliament are called hardliners, hold communist holdovers. The constitution isn't even a legitimate constitution. It's a Brezhnev constitution, a Stalin constitution. That's a lie. It wasn't the old constitution. It was the newly amended constitution of 1989. That parliament was entirely elected. There were no communist appointed seats. That's a deliberate confusion with the Soviet Congress, which Gorbachev abolished. The Russian Federation Congress was a, uh, in 1990, every one of those guys were democratically elected and they weren't hardliners, the hardliner was Yeltsin. He was the guy saying, we are gonna put through the shock therapy reforms, the hell with the pensioners, the hell with anything else, and that's what it's gonna be. And they were resisting that. They weren't resisting economic changes in the economy, they wanted, however, it modified by preserving certain human services and certain protections for the more vulnerable components of the population. That's what much of the fight is over. Some of the people in parliament were themselves privatizers. Some of them were the first backers of Yeltsin. And here you have an image of a president tearing up the constitution, suspending parliament, firing tanks, 125 millimeter cannons into the parliamentary building, killing scores and scores of people, Banning, uh, banning 15, no, I'm sorry, 12 political parties, suppressing and permanently suppressing something like 15 opposition newspapers. And this is called rescuing democracy. It's a rather marvelous inversion of truth. I always thought Orwell's model of, of, the, uh, of propaganda as being the total reversal of truth as being very crude, and I still do for the most part. That is, most propaganda doesn't simply lie, just say, you know, black is white, green is blue, or whatever else. It doesn't do that. It, it, it really more relies on framing and toning and shifts and emphasis and placement and, and, and repetition and that sort of thing, and, and omissions and that sort of thing. But, but, but that Orwellian model certainly does work, and you saw that manifested in the media, where they could take the guy who was destroying the democracy and transform in, him into the guy who was saving the, the democracy. The parliamentarians who were resisting that executive action were defined as the people who were the rebels and who were threatening the government, which was a remarkable, a remarkable one of the re remarkable propaganda feats <clears throat> Part of it is by equating free markets with democracy. 
If you turn to the entertainment industry, you find the same kind of thing. In entertainment, it's a little different though that the politics are, are even more hidden. Um, when you see somebody get up on a, a McNeil Lair or Nightline or something and he starts giving his rap, well, we feel this and the government policy this and we intend it, at least you know that you're listening to an interested party or you're listening to someone who is dealing with a political question. When you watch political values insinuated in entertainment, it's often hard to even detect them. I mean, you don't realize what's going on. The, the entertainment industry generally argues with Samuel Goldwyn, namely that we don't have political messages. We're in the business of entertaining people and not, um, and not propagandizing them. Samuel Goldwyn, the Hollywood producer, once said, if you have a message, go to Western Union. What he was telling writers and filmmakers, if you want to make a film like Grapes of Wrath, Salt of the Earth, uh, you know, these great dramas that, that say something about the struggles of the poor and all that, I said, you got some message like that, go to Western Union, don't do it in the films. But you know, if you watch Samuel Goldwyn's films, there's a message, there's a political message in there. You watch those films, you come away with an impression about the world and its values and all that. First of all, everybody's white except for maybe a black servant here or there, one or two. Uh, they all live in homes, and he made these movies during the Depression. They all live in homes where you'd have to have a six-figure income even then to be able to afford them. Lush homes and mansions and apartments and all that. They were, there was this glitter and glamour. Women were <clears throat> not in any kind of empowered positions at all. They always were sexual objects of one sort or another, jealous wives or flirtatious, flirtatious mistresses or whatever else. Uh, those were the Sam Goldwyn movies or they, were, or they were these inane ladies who came down on heels and great ostrich feathers on the hairs coming down the great white way. Um, that I maintain is a political thing. Working people were never portrayed in any serious way. They were just usually minor characters of not of much interest. It propagated the values of glitz and glamour and consumerism, and it was consciously escapist. I mean, he consciously said, this movie's a fix. This is for people to just escape and not look at reality. Well, to consciously deny reality and get people away from reality is itself a statement about reality. The British musician and pop star, Billy Bragg, he made a point about music. I'll quote him. He said, what people mean when they say music and politics don't mix is that music and left-wing politics don't mix. Right-wing politics go right through all our music, materialistic, racist, and sexist imagery, and the dwelling on exploiting people's feelings. So the very definition, unquote, the very definition of what is a political song or a political movie is itself political. <clears throat> And again, in the entertainment industry, I won't go on too much long, I'll, I'll, I'll leave some time for questions. In the entertainment industry, you get the same kind of thing, that, and the concentration of capital, the major producers control, control and distribute most about 90% of all the films that exist. Um, <clears throat> the major producers themselves are financed by the major New York banks. So Hollywood is, it is true, Hollywood is controlled by Wall Street. <clears throat> the uh, the people who put in te on television the big corporate advertisers often set the limits on what can or cannot be produced the single biggest corporate advertiser on television is a company known as Procter and Gamble 
and they have an editorial policy which reads in part, I'll quote, there will be no material that may give offense either directly or by inference to any commercial organization of any sort. That means any business. There will be no material on any of our programs which could in any way further the concept of business as cold, ruthless, and lacking all sentimental or spiritual motivation. Because business is mostly motivated by spiritual and sentimental things, <laughs> as you know. Members of the armed forces must not, must not be cast as villains. If there is any attack on American customs, and they mean the dominant customs of the business culture, it must be rebutted completely on the same show. Eastman Kovac notes, quote, a spokesman, that television shows are pre-screened, oh, I should say television shows, many television shows are pre-screened by the advertisers. And Eastman Kovac says, quote, in programs we sponsor on a regular basis, we do preview all scripts before the airing of the program. If we find a script is offensive, we will withdraw our commercials from the program. And by the way, most of what they find offensive are not sexual things, but political things. What can get on now in the area of, um, uh, 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 of sex is really liberal, has been liberalized, you know, and other things, language has been liberalized, and a lot of those things have loosened up amazingly. Uh, but there's still a lot of rigorous censorship, and most of it is directed toward political. Every network has what's called a production and standards department. Production and standards is a euphemism for censor. And the production and standards guy goes through these things and they look at what is around. And the New York Times, in one of the very rare occasions that it acknowledged that there's media censorship, see, occasionally the newspapers will acknowledge there are things that are wrong in the media if it's about television. They'll do that. They like to talk about it. And television isn't that great. So, on one story, November 27, 88, they said, they noted that. <clears throat> That while network production and standards censors, I, I'm using these words, I, I'll get to the quote. They've reduced their policing, here it is, reduced their policing of sexual and other cultural taboos. But network censors continue to be vigilant when it comes to overseeing the political content of television films. A poll taken by the Writers Guild of America, 86% of all the writers who ever wrote for television say that they experience personal censorship. Many claim that every script they have written, no matter how innocent, had been censored and diluted in some way. 81% believed that, quote, they answered yes to the quote, television is presenting a distorted picture of what is happening in this country today, politically, economically, and racially. <clears throat> and again, you get around to this argument, well, aren't we, giving, aren't we giving people, I'm gonna skip a lot of stuff here, aren't we giving people what they want? Well, I did, there was one little study, if I could find it. Here it is, Variety, in 1983, Variety, um, actually it wasn't Variety, they published a snippet of it. There was a National Association of Broadcasters did a study. The National Association of Broadcasters are the guys who own the TV and radio industry. And they did a very exhaustive study, 5,000 respondents, which is a huge sample, plus about several hundred depth interviews, which is really, really quite a thing to do extended interviews. I mean, usually depth interviews, you know, 20 of them is, is a sample of a, of a, uh, a larger sample of a, a thousand or something. It was a very exhaustive, extensive study. In-depth, I'm sorry, 500 in-depth interviews. Did I say 500? Well, 
It was 500 in-depth interviews. And then there were thousands of telephone interviews, shorter ones. The study was, how do audiences feel about television? See, the argument is, they won't watch the stuff because that's what they like. We give them this because that's what they like. They don't want more serious things. And yet, you know, when, um, when Roots came on, that documentary, uh, a very serious thing, about, uh, a story about, uh, story of slavery. It was a docudrama, really. It wasn't a documentary, it was a docudrama. It appeared on public television. It broke all records. There was no major network that ever had audiences like that. All records, people watched it and they were riveted and they were fascinated. And it's true of another, a, a, a number of other quality kinds of, of, of things. When they actually get on and when people see it in a certain framework or whatever else, not too alien, it doesn't seem too odd or too strange to them, they will watch it and they will, and there's a real hunger for interesting and informative things, which can also be entertaining. It doesn't have to be dull because it's informative and because it's important and serious. It doesn't have to be dull. It can be fascinating, you see. Okay, the NAB does this study, National Association of Broadcasters. How do you like television? And apparently Variety caught wind of it and they said the results were overwhelmingly negative. Respondents complained that television was less entertaining than ever. About half of them said they were watching less of it than in early years. Uh, more than half wanted more relevant programs that gave audiences the chance to participate in discussion or ask questions. This was in 83. Ask questions of political figures. There were all sorts of things like this, you know. Um, what the NAB did, they refused to release the study. Five years later, in 1988, I called the National Association of Broadcasters. And I said, I asked, finally got to a person who knew something, who, 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 I don't know if she's one of the gatekeepers. I said, why haven't you released the study? Is it true that you didn't release the study because the findings were so negative in broadcasting and you didn't want your advertisers, your corporate advertisers, who you say, this is the way to the American public because they love their television sets. You didn't want them to know about it. Is that why you didn't release the study? And she said, this is the end of the interview. Clunk, and she hung up the thing. So I think maybe I had something in my question. Um, <laughs> Well, let me end right there and just say, conclusion, it's not an independent democratic media. It's not an independent democratic culture. It is a corporate class-controlled culture in many ways. Let me say that capitalism is not just an economic system. It is an entire social order. It propagates its own images, values, and myths, um, <clears throat> which often are the stuff of culture. Images, values, and myths are the stuff of culture and capitalism, certainly corp the big Fortune 500 has a bigger say as to how that culture evolves than the democratic citizenry. And for democratic citizenry, that is a real danger and a real challenge. And what you ought to do is exercise your consumer sovereignty and not consume those soft drinks, both the soft drinks that rot your guts and the soft the soft drinks that rot your brains, the soft messages, the soft image, the soft drink images, and all that sort of thing. And what we also have to do is talk back to our television sets and our radio and support alternative media, both alternative news media and alternative um, entertainment forms. I'll end right there. Thank you very much.
now is the part where we will take in some questions for about 15, 20 minutes. 15 minutes, yeah, okay, sure. 15 minutes, anyone? Well, 80% of your commentators are conservative. Um, almost always they faithfully follow the official line, the Bush-Reagan or Clinton line, whatever it might be. So the question is, why do they think it's a liberal media? I think because the world, the reality of the world is so at variance with what the right-wingers think it is that some information does get on the air. For the, for the media to, to have credibility, for the media to perform its class control function, for the media to be one of these stabilizing control functions against progressive change and against those who might want a fairer distribution of position power and, and how wealth is used in this country, for them to faithfully control that, they have to have credibility. To have credibility, they have to sometimes deal with real issues, you see. So sometimes they do have to report things that there's a environmental problem, uh, there's a toxic waste dump here. Um, people also have what, what uh, the great Italian communist Antonio Gramsci called dual consciousness. That is, <clears throat> the larger issues, what they're thinking about, and the same thing Engels said to Marx, you wanna know what the average British worker is thinking about the big issues of empire? The same thing his boss is thinking, because that's all he hears. But they also have, Gramsci said, they also have another level of consciousness, which is things in their immediate environment, in their experience. So they get to things like, why are my taxes so high? What the hell am I getting for all these taxes I'm paying? Why must my kid register for the draft? Why are they sending him off to Iraq, Panama, Somalia, Lebanon, wherever else? Why is there this toxic waste dump here? Why did they take these beautiful woods in Montana, these beautiful forests, and turn them into a wasteland? How do they get away with that? What is that? So people do have questions, people do have experiences, and there's a lot of that out there. And the media has to be cognizant of that to some degree. When the Exxon Valdez, for instance, caused that disaster and, and destroyed that pristine, beautiful, that God, God created this beautiful, this beautiful coastline in Alaska, killing millions of fish and birds and otters and, uh, otters and, and, and all these creatures and, and, and destroying the whole industry there. They had to report it, you see. When they report that, Exxon doesn't look good. When Exxon doesn't look good, then the right-wingers say, there's the liberal media baiting and beating on the poor little corporations again. But when they reported it, who did they interview? They interviewed officials from Exxon. They interviewed government Alaska officials and a few townspeople for a little... Uh, local color, you know, oh, it's terrible, oh, it's a terrible man, oh, it's really bad, I don't know what's gonna happen. They never interviewed the environmental people, the environmental organization people who have been criticizing these, these tankers for years, that they take undue risk, that they come in too close to the coast, that they overload, that they do all these things. They never, they never get the people who really have a criticism of why that happened. That thing wasn't just a natural thing that just sort of happened. But there's a whole system of interest and power behind getting as much of this oil as cheaply as possible from here to there. Um, 
But in the midst of all that, even though, so therefore, even though critics like myself may be dissatisfied with how the Exxon story was covered, people on the right are enraged that it was covered at all. If they had their way, if they had their way, your average newspaper would be nothing but a few glorifying stories about the wonders and blessings of private enterprise, and then a few anti-communist horror stories, you know, what the North Koreans are doing, torturing little babies when they come out of the womb or something. And then, um, and then, um, and then some crossword puzzles and uh, cooking recipes and, and comic strips. And by the way, that does describe a lot of newspapers in America. You know, you live in New York, when you go across the country and it's amazing you pick up some of these papers and that's pretty much what they are. Now, to the extent that they aren't those things, that's when the right-wing media gets bothered. To the extent that they've got to hear an occasional bumbling comment from Tom Wicker or Bill Moyers on the media, who never goes too far over, you see, to that extent they say it's a liberal media. They forget the other 16, right? They forget William Buckley and McLaughlin and George Will and Evans and Novak and, and all these people who are talking. One or two of those people is enough, is, is something they don't tolerate. So they call it a liberal, and by calling it a liberal media, of course, you keep the media on its guard. You keep it dressing off to the right, to dressing its right, dressing its right. You keep that kind of drum fire hitting from the right to keep pulling it, pushing it over to the right. So you change the center of gravity. That would be my answer as to how you can have these people convince it's a liberal media when in fact it isn't. <clears throat> That was, that was a good question, by the way. It really got me going, didn't it? Good question. Dr. Berenti, um, with the death of I.F. Stone, and uh, I don't know if George Salidas is still alive in Vermont, but uh, guys like... George Yes, I'm sorry. George Salidas is still alive. Anyway, um, are there any uh, journalists out there who, supposed to, who do their job diligently, as you know? Well, uh, I.F. Stone and George Seldes did do their job uh, diligently, and they never wrote for the major media. I.F. Stone in all his life was never even invited to the National Press Club. Did you know that? Never even, he was, he was red-baited out of the press club, and he wasn't even a communist. Um, you know when he got invited to speak at the press club? When he was 82 years old, about, about four months before he died, he finally came in, after he'd written a bestseller called The Trial of Socrates. Great book, by the way. Um, he decided to become an ancient Greek scholar and, and, and less of the same. So I would say they aren't even the exceptions to the rule. They themselves were proved prove that if you do that kind of really investigative journalism that you attack the powers that be, you're left to write your little own independent newsletter, which might have a circulation of 20 or 30,000, but you can't reach the millions. You're not allowed, your columns aren't syndicated. There are people who try now doing that. Jeff Cohn and my buddy Norm Solomon, they're both writing a, a column together. But they get adopted in about 20 newspapers, you know. And they, occasionally one drops them and then another drops them and then another drops them because they get, they get a little too hard-hitting. Uh, there are a few other people like that who are trying. Jim Hightower, the Texas populist, has a radio show which is, I guess, maybe gets about 20 outlets. But you see, you, you can't, Jim Hightower is, vastly more intelligent than Rush Limbaugh and, and, and vastly and, and, and really funny and witty but Rush Limbaugh has 600 radio 
stations that adopted because who owns the radio stations they're not going to take a jim hightower and hightower isn't a great i mean his politics aren't mine he's kind of a liberal populist but he's got a lot of and he makes it and he's got lots of little jokes you know nothing in the middle of the road except a a, a dead armadillo with a yellow stripe down its back and he kind of talks that folksy humor which um um and and with a lot of political information